All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as always, I'm very thankful to be able to worship together and to share God's word. Uh, if you're new or visiting, I want to welcome you again. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff here, and we want to welcome you to our church. Just to reiterate, again, today is the Lord's Supper. I always look forward to these once a month where we're able to fellowship together, eat together. Friendly reminder to all our members, this is the time to maybe meet somebody you don't normally interact with, particularly someone who's newer, or even who's been in the church that you don't get regular FaceTime with. So we look forward to that. Again, apologies, outside of our control, the setup's going to be a little different. Some of us might be eating standing, some of us eat outside. But again, let's still continue this rhythm of wanting to fellowship together. And again, for um, August, we are taking a month of rest. At our church, we value not just burning all our volunteers, out, but really allowing them to rest and to worship. So can we actually give a hand to all our volunteers as we kick off this month? Again, we are not a, we don't own this building. It takes a lot of hands, a lot of work, a lot of people who sacrifice mornings, who stay late to make this happen. And so just know we are very appreciative of you. If you ever know any of them who do that, uh, let's just make it a continual thing at our church where we appreciate them. And maybe you have a heart to even take part and help our church to function the way that it does in a healthy way. All right, well, if you're joining us for the first time, we actually just finished a July sermon series titled The Faith of Our Own, and uh, July is typically when we have guest speakers come in, and for this past month, uh, we had this topic where they basically shared how to kind of understand and process our cultural backgrounds and our experiences and how it impacts our understanding of the gospel. And if you're like me, that's not something that you hear that often, and I thought it was very helpful, and hopefully that's something that we can continue the conversation is, because I think it's not talked about as often as we need. But today, we're actually going to be shifting gears a bit, and for the next three weeks, starting from today, we're going to go through a short series like we announced through the book of Titus, the book of Titus. It is one of the shorter books in the New Testament. There's only three chapters in it with 46 verses total. Uh, it is one of three pastoral epistles. Uh, the other two are First and Second Timothy. So it's kind of the trio of this pastoral letters that the apostle writes. And the reason they're called the pastoral epistles is because of the nature of the content of what's written in them. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he focuses specifically on the organization, the, the makeup, the relationships, the leadership within the walls of the church and how that bleeds out beyond the church as well. So if you're ever curious, like, what is the church? If you maybe grew up in the church, but you never actually took a step back to realize, like, what is the church supposed to be? What does a healthy church look like? What does it look like for our church to grow in a, in a healthy way? Uh, this is the perfect series for you. So if, with that in mind, if you have your Bibles or your programs, uh, let's turn to our text in Titus 1. We won't be able to preach through everything in the chapter, but I hope to read it all so we can get a grasp. And again, it's not too long. So as you turn there and as you open God's word, can we all rise together as we here at our church? We believe that God is present and speaking through his word every time that we open it. So again, Titus chapter 1, this is the reading of God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, 
but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their own very, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Finally, verse 16, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Amen. to reading God's word. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, as we open your word, we ask that your spirit would take control, uh, speak powerfully, clearly, rid us of any distraction, and allow us to really take a heart to what you have to say in a way that will not only uh, enter our minds, but our hearts and our hands and transform our lives as well. So we thank you, bless our time, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Again, so a longer text, but hope to give you a full context of where we're zooming in when it comes to the book of Titus. And, and just by way of introduction, uh, one of the fast food chains that I've come to appreciate a lot more over time is Chick-fil-A. I think there's some Chick-fil-A fans in here. Uh, I initially actually was not the biggest fan of Chick-fil-A. So whenever someone would be like, hey, what do you guys want to eat? And people get excited about Chick-fil-A, I would actually be very quiet because I was very disappointed. Okay? I was always more of a steak beef kind of guy, uh, not a chicken guy. I never thought chicken sandwiches were good. It never seemed appealing to me. But now I'm converted. I love Chick-fil-A. I, I, I think uh, once every two months on Sunday, I get sad because I'll go to Chick-fil-A and it's closed, right? I think we, I, I'm just forgetful in that way because I love it. And, and the food is only part of the reason why I love Chick-fil-A. Uh, what made me so interested and attracted to Chick-fil-A as a whole was how consistent they are, not only in their quality of food, but in their quality of service and how consistent kind of their brand is, no matter which location you go. Right? And hopefully you've shared this experience for those of Chick-fil-A lovers. And I got an inside scoop to see, like, how did they do this? Right? That's not easy to do. And I actually know a Chick-fil-A operator personally. Uh, she's somebody that I grew up with for, for many, many years. And so we kind of had a conversation. And, you know, at one point, actually, when I wasn't going to do pastoral ministry, she was like, you should join Chick-fil-A. So I was this close to becoming a Chick-fil-A person, right? So I, I know this is personal to me. And she was telling me, you know, all that consistency you see and the quality you're experiencing, it does not happen by accident. And I was like, tell me more. And so here's what she said. She's like, for one, you don't just get to open a Chick-fil-A. It's not like you could say, hey, I'm a qualified person. I'm a businessman. Can let me open a Chick-fil-A. Here's the money and whatnot. They pick you. There are tens of thousands of applicants, very qualified, that are just waiting to be a Chick-fil-A operator. And they're just waiting in line because you don't get to choose. They choose you. And she was saying, more than your giftedness, more than your charisma, more than your experience, which are all good things, there's basically two main things they look for. One is your character. Who are you? How are you as a person? And the second thing they look for is, do you represent and align with the values of our company? Like, you get Chick-fil-A. You understand the inner workings and DNA of what we're about as a company. So, for example, if you've been to a Chick-fil-A, you immediately know they pride themselves on being hospitable. And one tangible way this shows up is they always say, my pleasure, right? So it's like, hey, thank you for this. My pleasure. Thanks for that. My pleasure. No other restaurant does that. 
And for the most part, the workers, they don't seem to be faking it, but they actually seem much friendlier than your average fast food worker. And the operator that I know, she was sharing with me, obviously you can try to train your employees to do this, but the only reason it sticks and becomes a culture is because the leaders practice it. And they also believe in it. That's why who they put in leadership matters so much because you can't fake culture. It needs to come genuinely. Now, on the flip side, another fast food restaurant I also like sometimes is McDonald's. Sometimes. The reason I say sometimes is because there are many, many McDonald's stores, and they are not all created equal. Okay, if you are a McDonald's lover like me, you understand this. Some of them are good. Some of them are not good. There's a McDonald's in La Mirada on Valley View. That one is good. There's other McDonald's. They're not good. Even though they both say McDonald's, they both have the same brand, there's a discrepancy you're going to experience. Some McDonald's, there's hot, fresh fries. Others, it seems like somebody spat it out and it's just like cold and it's not for humans to consume, even though it's the same exact fries. Other times, you'll go and you have a pleasant experience. Sometimes, I have the worst experience where it seems like the workers hate life and they hate me. I just don't understand why. And the food, sometimes it's subpar. And this is the case because McDonald's is much more corporate. They're more about let's raise as many and build up as many franchises as possible. There's clearly not as strong of a push for culture as there is for Chick-fil-A. That's a long intro, but here's why I say this. What makes Chick-fil-A stand out and how does it attract so many people? One explanation is they're not trying to open as many stores as possible. They are heavily guarding and controlling the quality to ensure that these stores not only exist, but they are healthy, they are aligned, they are growing, and the way that these stores do that is there is a blueprint that all of the operators are following. Though in their unique ways, there is a common blueprint. And I share this because obviously the church is not Chick-fil-A, but Titus is in a similar situation where he needs to figure out, how do I take this church plant in this island of Crete and not only just have it survive, but build it out to be healthy? How is it going to be a church that actually grows? As you read in verse 5, the letter is written because Paul has commissioned his spiritual son and disciple Titus. And he says, I want you to bring order and stability to, this, to the churches in Crete. And this letter, again, it's not just written to one church, but he's giving a blueprint to not only all the churches back then, but even our church today. And one thing that's clear, Paul views church growth and church health much more like Chick-fil-A than McDonald's. And the unfortunate reality is that many churches today, some of you may have been at some of these churches, they have departed from God's prescribed blueprint and culture, and this causes people to have McDonald's-esque experiences in the church. A lot of the people who end up at our church are people who have been hurt and wounded by churches that have the brand of Christ, but they smell like and taste like antichrist. Anything but love, warmth, and acceptance even though it has the brand of church and Jesus. See, if the church was simply about existence, Paul would not have written this letter at all. He would have planted the church and planted many more. But even though he's away, he cares so much about the church not just surviving, but it being a healthy church that actually makes an impact in the lives of the people within the church and therefore through the lives of the people within the church to those outside the church. The church is not supposed to be this entity that just disappears in the culture but makes an impact. It is God's method to not only grow those in the church but to attract those outside the church. Now, if you're Titus, you have to understand this is not an easy commission. A little bit about Crete. 
It was notorious in the ancient world for being one of the most immoral, corrupt places. Imagine like the, if Las Vegas was an island. Okay? It is this unsafe place plagued with violence, sexual corruption. In fact, history says people there remained drunk. So they were more drunk than not on a regular basis. They were infamous being, for being liars. That was just part of their culture. In fact, the, the verb critizo, it means to lie. So to be a Cretan meant to be a liar by definition. And so now in one sense, you might be thinking, why would Paul want to plant a church in a corrupt place like that? And if you're thinking that, which I did too, we should be humbled. Because the Orange County mentality is get away from danger. Get away from that kind of corruptness, right? But you have to be humble to realize it's because that's the kind of place that needs the church. (laughs) Those are the kinds of people that need the gospel. It makes no sense for churches to huddle around all safe, Christianized people. They're supposed to go out and make an impact. So Paul sees Crete is the place we got to go. That's the very reason. So he plants this church, and there's a lot of work to be done. And so chapter 1 tells us one of the main things that Titus needs to go and address is false teaching and corruption. It is infiltrating the church left and right. So Paul says, stay in Crete, set things in order, and make things right. Now, if you didn't know, our church, Grace Hill, is actually somewhat of a new church in that too. If you're visiting, this might sound new to you. Uh, Even though we've been around, our church replanted just a few years ago. So in a sense, there's a lot of parallels between us and this new church in Crete. And even though Orange County may not be as explicitly corrupt as Crete, I actually think uh, here in Orange County, we struggle with a much more profound, dangerous type of corruption because it's the corruption of complacency and comfort where at least back then they know the right and the wrong, the, the evil and not. Here it's kind of blurred because we don't really know if we need Christ or not. So the larger question I want to consider as we look at chapter 1 is, so how can we, like the church in Christ, a newer church, not just survive, but meaningfully establish ourselves, which we're trying to do, Lord willing, and grow despite the culture that we live in? In other words, what is the biblical blueprint and DNA for a church that is healthy and pleasing to God? And that is going to be the operating question for the entire series which is why I took the time to answer that, okay? So three things to consider in that. Number one, a healthy church focuses and has godly leaders. Godly leaders. Secondly, a church that is healthy is comprised of a courageous conviction of the truth. And third and last, that truth is a truth that leads to godliness, okay? So godly leaders, courageous conviction of truth, and truth that leads to godliness. So first, godly leadership. A lot of you, a lot of people in our church work in the tech field. And one thing I realized that's pretty common across the tech world is your experience is vastly dependent on the team you work with. Uh, I started to pick this up later. Whenever I'd ask someone who they're in tech how their job is, uh, they would almost say it's tied to whoever my manager is. It doesn't even really matter about the larger company or anything else, but uh, members would share with me how they don't even necessarily make that much money, but they would never leave their job because they, will lo- they love their team. And their team, the culture of the team, is kind of decided by their manager or boss. And on the flip side, people share how even though they make all this money and work for this reputable company, they hate their job and want to leave. Why? Because their leader is, is a terrible person. They make their lives miserable. And again, that's not, that shouldn't be a surprise because it basically shows the very generally understand importance and impact of leadership in any context, in any situation. I'm confident we're all old enough to have been under both good and bad leaders in our lives in a variety of different contexts. I don't think I need to make the case about the importance of leadership. Now, leadership, it is a loaded concept. It can mean different things to different situations. But if having good leaders is of utmost importance in the workplace, how much more should this be the case in the church? 
right? There's so much we can learn about God's blueprint for a healthy church, not only by the emphasis on leadership we see in the text, but on the qualifications and type of leader that Paul says a healthy church ought to look for. Again, look at verse 5. He literally says, I left you in Crete to bring order to the churches, and the way you're going to do that, first order of business, appoint elders, leaders. To bring stability, you need to appoint leaders, and the biblical office and term for leaders in the church is the office of elder. Now, this could be a longer conversation. Just know at our church, we believe the office of elder and pastor, it's the same word and same thing. So I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. If you have a question about that, you can ask us. Now, I want to spend a brief moment getting us on the same page on what an elder is and is supposed to do, because I think when I use the term pastor or elder, A lot of us have varied definitions and experiences. I know for me growing up, uh, an elder, which in Korean is translated changnonim, an elder was basically an old-looking, suit-wearing Korean man who I had to bow 90 degrees to. He was this distant, high-horsed figure. Uh, He was not your average member because he was an elder, and he made large decisions for the church. That's what an elder was in my mind. What was an elder for you growing up? Or maybe you have no idea. Now, there's a lot that can be said about eldership, but let me give a simple definition. An elder is a recognized leader who is primarily called with the role of preaching, teaching, and shepherding the congregation of the church that they are overseeing. Okay, that's what an elder is. That's what an elder should be. Any other function or definition you might have probably is off if it's not within those bounds. Now, the job description itself speaks volumes about what the church is about. Okay? Notice Paul did not tell Titus, I want you to appoint a CEO or a boss or a businessman or a strategist over these churches. If even a quick glance at the qualification of an elder shows that what matters most in a church leader, in a spiritual leader, it has almost nothing to do with giftedness or competency. It is almost exclusively about their character. You can do a whole sermon series on it, but it's pretty straightforward. If you read it, it's things like this plan is blameless, above reproach, has good reputation, is faithful in marriage and the home. He is not arrogant, not hot-tempered, all in all a man of good repute and character. And here's another important thing to note. Notice how Paul says, appoint not an elder, but appoint elders in every town. In other words, the prescribed blueprint for the church to be ideal and healthy is that the church is led by a plurality, more than one group of elders, godly elders who are leading and shepherding together. Now, why do I bring this up and why should you care? Is that not just for like, committed people or like leaders? Why should I as the average church member or visitor care about this? Well, let's start this. If you are a visitor and looking for a church, which I think some of you are, what do you look for in a church? What do you look for? And just know I am absolutely putting the spotlight on the leaders of our church like Pastor Tom and myself because if this text is true, you should heavily consider if you can see evidences of godly character in the life of our pastoral staff as you consider is Grace Hill a healthy church. 100% you should consider that. It might argue be the most important thing you consider. And yet, most of you know, the most common thing, which is still important, that people look for in a church is, I want community. As long as I have community, I'm cool. And amen to that. We need community. But the often neglected but biblically grounded reality based on our text, it is just as important to look for healthy, godly leaders that you can entrust your spiritual life and care to. I know for many of us, even the idea of church leadership and elders, it kind of triggers us 
because we've either seen so much brokenness or we've been personally hurt by a pastor or some sort of spiritual leader. If you are a, a pastor's kid in here or an elder's kid, we can probably go to the back room and just cry together. I don't even have to say anything. That's why I have this immediate connection with PK. I say, are you a PK? And then we're just bonded in like the brokenness and suffering. We just know, right? Some of you have that. You're here, but you're kind of neutralized because you've been so scarred and wounded by the place that's supposed to love and nurture you. It's used you, it's abused you, and you're just kind of spat out. You don't know what to do. Church is kind of tainted. And just know, uh, as a pastor myself, that absolutely crushes me. I know it crushes Pastor Tom. It breaks my heart to hear why. Because pastors and elders are given the God-given high call to teach, to serve, to love and care for God's people. Not manipulate, not abuse, not hurt. So when we hear that, it is a, a vast misrepresentation of what God hopes the leaders in the church ought to be. Now obviously elders aren't perfect, but this is why a church's health and longevity often lives or dies in the character of its leaders. I used to think like, show me a church Uh, On the outside, oh, they have nice buildings, they have nice programs, the people seem really committed, they seem really down. In the end of the day, you know what the the historic, timeless reality and truth is? And I've seen this, I'm not super old, but I'm old enough to see kind of the rise and fall of churches. It lives or dies on the godliness and health of the leaders. Almost every single time. Now, have you ever asked or wondered, why do we even need pastors? In this day where you can literally listen to messages from some of the greatest speakers at the you know, flick of a finger, or you can just open the Bible, why can't you just take your own spiritual walk and read the Bible? Like, why do you need a pastor? Like, some of you guys, it's just religiosity. Like, I'm just used to having a pastor, but why do you need a pastor? And there's a lot of ways to answer this, but I think one helpful angle is to actually look at what Paul says regarding why the church needs elders. Again, he, the language he uses to Titus is, I want you to put in order what is undone. A helpful translation there is that Titus, he's appointing to set things in order, and that phrase, put things in order, it's the same word that has the root word ortho, which is where we get the word orthodontist. Okay, ortho. Now, what does an orthodontist do? Some of you know I had Invisalign for a few years, and I finally took it off, praise the Lord. Okay, Uh, I had a one-year program. It took me three years because I was just not faithful with it. But it is off, hallelujah, look at my teeth. I'm so happy, okay? So my teeth were crooked. Not only were they crooked, my bite was off. In other words, it was not aligned. It was not how teeth ought to be. And so the purpose of me going to orthodontist or orthodontics is whether it's braces or Invisalign, it is to straighten what is crooked and to keep what is crooked straightened and bring it as close to what it ought to be versus what it actually is. And even though I am now done with my Invisalign treatment, those of you guys who've gone orthodontists know, I still have to wear retainers every day. Why? Because teeth have this nagging tendency to want to revert back to a crooked state. That's just how they are. So one way to understand why has God ordained elders and pastors to be in the church to regularly preach and teach and watch over your souls? Because pastors function as spiritual orthodontists who regularly provide care, correction, guidance through the pulpit, through prayer, through discipleship. Why? Because the scripture is abundantly clear. Like our teeth, we all have a tendency to drift towards apathy and away from God, not towards him. And it is the pastor's responsibility 
to be that for the members. Now, to be transparent, our church currently only has one official elder. <laughs> it's like, you need a plurality. We have one. <laughs> I know, right? Why do I share that? That's the honest truth. We are not in the place where we ideally would want to be. That's what I love about Pastor Tom. He's very upfront about that. Since day one, he's like, I want to be a plurality. And I just keep telling him, no, <laughs> we don't want to join you yet because we take this call very, very seriously. And right now, we are actually currently in the process of elder training where some of the members, you should know this, where myself and another brother, we are journeying to see if this call to eldership seems right for us. But can I ask you this? If this is the case, members of the church, can you pray for us? Can you pray for the leadership of this church? And not just us, because who knows what's going to happen. We may or may not go through. But that God will raise up and establish a godly plurality of leaders here at Grace Hill who can faithfully lead and shepherd not just this arbitrary church, but you, your souls towards Christ. And so again, there's many things Paul could have told Titus to prioritize, but he clearly says, appoint elders, men of character and godliness who can lead the church. And we need to pray for that. So that's the first aspect of the blueprint. Uh, the second is this, a courageous conviction of truth. Uh, we all generally know a shepherd's role is to care for and tend to the sheep, right? And I know whenever I think of a shepherd, I always have that image where they have this cane and they're kind of holding a sheep in a very tender way. And that's definitely a majority of what the pastoral role involves, right? To, to pray for people, to encourage them, to come alongside them. But what's often forgotten is why does a shepherd carry a rod? It's not necessarily to just discipline the sheep, even though that might be a part of it. But the equally important role of shepherds in the ancient world was not just to nurture the sheep, but to protect them. The rod was a weapon that the shepherd would carry, and the primary purpose was to fight off wolves that would frequently try to attack and devour the sheep. That's the aspect of shepherds that we often forget about. Like these shepherds were probably pretty gangster, right? It's not just like, oh, here's my sheep, but it's like, woof, pa pa, and they're beating them up. And verse 9 tells us that's actually equally a part of an elder. Look at verse 9. Holding to the message as taught so he'll be able to encourage with sound teaching, yes, but also to refute those who contradict it. In other words, one of the main reasons Paul was pushing Titus to establish elders was because the church was being attacked by what the Bible would call wolves, false teachers. It was becoming corrupted by the Cretan culture. That's what verse 10 and on says. There's these rebellious people. They are deceived. They're adding all kinds of weird stuff to the purity of the gospel. They're leading entire households astray. And Paul doesn't just say, ignore the situation or focus on other things or don't cause conflict. He straight up says, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in faith. Just know one of the values of our pastoral staff, and hopefully you notice this if you visit our church, it is to be as winsome and sensitive as we can be when it comes to communicating biblical truth. Okay? Uh, we put a lot of time, energy, and prayer to wrestle with how do we share God's word, not just in a dry, calculated manner that you can just get out of a commentary, but how do we add color, relevance, nuance in a way that's appropriate to help people really engage with the word? We do our best to do that. And at the same time, as I was reading through this and I'm going through elder training, my prayer, and I hope your prayer is too, that our pastors would never shy away from or be embarrassed or afraid to proclaim the truth of God's word, even if it means it may offend some, it may go against the grain of our comforts or the culture at large. Why? 
Because a pastor who is afraid to feed the truth of God's word, both to nourish and to protect, is like a shepherd who is not willing to fend off the wolves who are going to devour the sheep. In the case of the Cretan church in particular, this false teaching they were dealing with seems to have dealt with what was common back then, which is legalism. And this idea of Jewish religiosity creeping into the church. Basically, like often happens, these false teachers were sharing a message that was starting to add requirements to the gospel. They were probably saying things like, it's not enough to just say you're right with God. You need to do this sort of ritual practice. You need to go do these things if you want to be right with God. And again, that sounds so like people who grew up hearing the gospel, we think, I would never fall into that. I know it's about grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8.9, right? I know that. But let me show you how, how subtle and the reason why legalism and this kind of religiosity always creeps in. What might this look like today? A few years ago, I met up with a friend of mine who shared that he was depressed and struggling. And I said, why? What's wrong? And he said, well, my mom's in the darkest place she's ever been in her life. So I asked, what happened? What led her to that point? And guess what he said? To my surprise, he said, God did. God led her there. And I was like, what? What do you mean? So it turns out, Christian family, Christian mother, the pastor at her church was teaching what I would label a false gospel of prosperity. He was saying, if you devote yourself to God, if you go to morning prayer, if you serve wholeheartedly, give your money and sacrifice for God, he will bless you and he will make your business successful and prosperous and he will answer your prayers. And so he shared with me that his mom ate that message up because who wouldn't? And she was right about in the season where she was about to go all in in her savings to start a business. So she thought this must be a sign from God. God is sending me a message that if I just trust him and give my all, he's going he's gonna to reciprocate with, with blessing. And so she goes all in and she starts fast, pray, sacrifice her exactly like she was taught. And she opens up her business and guess what happened? Absolute failure. Absolute failure. The business failed miserably, closed within two months, bankrupt. Now, as much as you would think it's because of the loss of the money and the business failure that she hit rock bottom, guess what my friend said? And this actually is the reality for a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves. He said the reason she was crushed, sure, it's not easy to have a business fail, but it's because she felt it was a result of her not being good enough for God. Because that's what she was, she was taught. She did all she could. She sacrificed all she had. And so therefore, because her business failed, it must mean God is not pleased with me. Let me ask you, what caused this? Was it her circumstance? Was it her sincerity or lack of? No. It was her doctrine. She was falsely taught and given conditions to what is supposed to be the unconditional, limitlessly, freely given grace of God. She had a false doctrine of blessing. And for a lot of us middle-class, ambitious people, the false doctrine of blessing is prevalent even today in our hearts. I would argue many of us have a false doctrine of blessing in different ways. The way you know this might be the case for you is if you think God is withholding some good thing in your life. It could be anything, a career advancement, a relationship, a certain situation to pan out because of something you did or you didn't do. You ever have that nagging thing creep into your heart? Hey, why is this not panning out? Maybe God's not happy with me. Maybe he's trying to teach me a lesson. We have a sickness in our souls that has a propensity to add conditions to the gospel in the same way that our teeth want to go crooked. 
And what the church needs is the courage and boldness to regularly proclaim the gospel in its purest, unadulterated form and to call out any false gospel, no matter even if it's a hint of it, that takes away from the glorious message because it will lead you astray. What that means is any of you sitting here think you are too sinful or have strayed too far to be loved and forgiven by God. You're wrong. The Bible says so. Romans makes it absolutely clear. There's literally nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the same time, if there's anyone here that thinks, I have a good right standing with God, and you're kind of high-horsed because you are doing your devotions, you're serving faithfully, you are also wrong. And this is what I'm more prone to. I find myself getting into a spiritual state of ingratitude and complacency. Why? Because I tend to have this pattern where the gospel of grace, it degenerates back to the gospel of works in my life. And I know that because I start to think it's a result of me, who I am, and what I have done that makes me right before God. And that just rips the humility and worship out of your heart. And some of you guys are going through that. So we need a conviction of truth and the courage to correct and call out the false teaching, which leads to the third aspect. The truth needs to lead to godliness. Uh, There is a profound difference between thinking something is true versus believing and knowing that is true. Uh, I see this regularly through my toddler son, Ezra. So every now in the morning, I'll let my son Ezra kind of help me while I'm cooking breakfast. So we kind of have like this uh, kitchen aid stander thing where obviously he's not tall enough to reach the counter. So he'll stand in it next to me. This is me. This is kind of the stove. And I'll put him obviously further away where he can't really touch anything dangerous. And one of the things I taught him from an early, early age is never touch the stove area. It is hot. It is very hot. You will get burned. And again, it's not like he's within reach with it regularly. And I'm usually standing in a way where he can't do it. But I remember one morning, again, life gets busy and crazy. While I was cooking, he leaned over and reached with the tip of his middle finger and he touched the red hot stove. Okay, I don't have a fire one. I have the electric one. He touched it and got burned. And that was quite the morning. I think like 30 minutes of crying and pain and running through cold water. And then, you know, me feeling like I'm a terrible father, going through all of that. And now as sad as that situation was, something interesting happened after the incident. What he had always heard as truth from his father, that touching this hot thing will burn you, moved from being a concept, and now he had this visceral experience that led him to not only know it, but to truly believe it. And so now he knows I don't touch the stove. I have a visceral bodily mechanic that tells me this is true. Now that is a simple example of the bigger reality that profound deep truths lead to some form of action and transformation by definition. That's what the Bible seems to point to. And what greater truth is there to say than that you know and have a relationship with the holy living God of the universe? Do you realize the weight of a statement like that? In one sense, it's reasonable to say that Paul's entire premise and theme throughout Titus is actually found at the very beginning of the book where he says, I don't know if you caught it, he says in his introduction, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ for the faith of God's elect, and here's the key theme statement that we're going to return to, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. There is a knowledge of the gospel and the truth of God's word that must lead to godliness. He makes the case that true conviction has to influence your character and that true belief has to affect behavior. 
Now, one helpful way to look at this a little deeper is breaking down what it even means to know something, okay? The typical word used for knowledge in this Greek, I'm going to get a little nerdy, but I think it makes a really strong point. It's this word gnosis, which basically translated, I know, okay? I know something, whether through experience or something I've heard. But the word used here to talk about the kind of relationship that Christians are to have with God's truth, it is not gnosis, but it is epignosis, So there's a qualifier to the knowledge, and this word epi, what it does is it intensifies the meaning, and it's not just any ordinary knowledge, but epinosis is a full, precise knowledge signifying a much more thorough, much more complete, much more larger knowledge than your everyday gnosis. It implies that not just knowing the truth, but I now have an intimate, personal relationship with the truth. So Ezra went from gnosis that the stove is hot to having experienced an epinosis that the stove is now hot. It is now personal to him. And the problem with a lot of so-called Christians in Crete in verse 16, which may be a dagger to some of our hearts in our day and age, look what it says. This is their problem. They claim to know gnosis God, but they deny him by their works. In fact, this idea of thinking you are right with God simply because you mentally believed in him was actually one of the greatest heresies that the church wrestled with. You might have heard it before. It's this thing called Gnosticism. You you see that word gnosis in there, Gnosticism? It basically was this false teaching that my relationship with God can remain entirely in my head. So long as I have a mental assent and I agree to some fundamental truths about God, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter how I live during the week. Why? Because in my head, I believe God. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. And the Bible says that is heresy. That is absolutely false teaching. The church cannot and will not grow if it is full of people who only have a mere gnosis of God and do not have a personal relationship with this truth that leads to godliness. And one way I think is helpful that I've heard is to understand that truth, the way you know truth is really working in your life, it should operate in a threefold way when it's properly applied. One way to look at it is that the truth, it should be your doctrine, your devotion, and your duty. A little better way to say it, I think, is truth ought to first renew your mind in the head. It ought to affect your heart and your emotions. It ought to influence your hand in your actions. So if you ever want to know, is truth really registering in my life? Ask those three questions. Is it changing my mind? Is it affecting my heart? And is it changing how I live? And if any one of those is imbalanced or disproportionate, you're going to fall into a little bit of crookedness and your godliness will be a little warped. Now, as I close, I want to break this down a little further because I think our relationship to truth and how we understand it is of utmost importance in our church's context. Because I actually think most people here would say, especially if you call yourself a Christian, I believe in truth. Well, what is your relationship to the truth of God's word? One commentator, he shares how for many of us, it's not the truth we are taught, it is how we relate to what we are taught that is problematic. Now, there's three general ways people relate to truth, okay? I'm going to get a little practical here. Ask yourself, do you resonate with any of these people or groups? The first group of people are nominal Christians. Nominal Christians. These are people who claim to be Christian, but as the title suggests, it's nominal purely by name. You don't see any fruits of godliness. You don't see any desire to serve God and his people. You don't see any sense that they care to read God's word or pray. And this is not just one or two times. This is a a pattern and lifestyle. And these people typically are the ones who grew up in the church. They had their minds passively filled with Christian things. So they have the gnosis, 
But there is no heart affection. There is no action change. They never took it to heart and made it epinosis. So you are a nominal Christian by definition. Now, no one likes to be called a nominal Christian. But you will never, ever grow if you don't realize that that might be where you're at. Nominal Christianity. The second group are the doctrinally formal Christians. Okay, And I borrowed these titles from a pastor that I really like. Doctrinally formal Christians. These are people, and I fell into this group. These are people who care deeply about theology and the Bible. But their demeanor and posture towards people is lacking so much compassion and grace that you cannot help but wonder if the Jesus that they so passionately preach is actually working on their own hearts. Because there's such a discrepancy. These people are all about doctrinal fidelity and correctness, but there's no sense that they themselves are striving to grow in gentleness and kindness and tenderness like Christ. And these people, and I was taught this way, they often confuse spirituality with being knowledgeable, being theological. If I know the Bible, that means me and God are good. You know what that means? You have really big heads and a small heart. The flip side, the third group are non-doctrinal but moral Christians. Probably the flip side of that is these are the people who think the most important thing is let's not fight over these issues. Let's not care as much about doctrine. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's just do the right thing. Let's just be loving people. These people are turned off by, you know, overly, you know, studious Bible studies and learning theology. These people probably don't like the sermon I'm giving right now. It's like, just tell me what to do. I don't care about the blueprint of the church. I don't care about these kind of doctrines. Just tell me, how do I serve and love? Now, that's a good thing, and it sounds almost better in a way, but the problem with that is this. You have a small head and big hands, and eventually your hands are going to get burnt out because you forget what you're doing and why you're doing it in the first place. And these people have the tendency to either become self-condemning because they think they're not good enough or self-righteous because they think my hands are what make me right before the Lord. And works righteousness creeps in. Can you relate to any of these descriptions? And if not, there is a fourth group. You know what the fourth group is? Indifferent. I actually don't care about anything. I don't care about doctrine. I don't care about loving the Lord. I don't care about doing anything for the Lord. In fact, I would question, why are you even here? <laughs> the Bible would lovingly ask you that. And I hope none of, one, none of us are in there. Can you relate to any of these descriptions? As we close, maybe for some of you, if you're honest, you are pretty much living the life of a nominal Christian. The only thing that displays your faith in Christ is that you sometimes come to church. And if that's really the case, as a pastor, I would want to challenge you, see where you really stand with God, because God does not have a nominal relationship with his people. He doesn't just say by name, I am the Lord and the shepherd, but haha, I'm actually not. So therefore, there is an imbalance and a complete offsetting of what he intends to be to his people. In other words, it is an oxymoron to have a nominal relationship with a personal God. And he wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to take you from gnosis to epinosis. And you could do that now. No better time than at the Lord's table. Because it's not anything you do or don't do. It is the blood and the body that was broken and shed for you that in an instant says, let's add that epi to your gnosis. 
For others, maybe Christianity has become reduced to filling your mind with truth. You read, you listen to sermons, you go to book studies, you know all the right answers, but your heart has become so cold relationally towards God and towards people. You have no growing desire or joy to want to love and serve people. You're just kind of frozen in the head and in your knowledge. And I would challenge you, if that's the case, you need to massage some affection and action back into your life. And third and last for others, you, maybe you've fallen that you just want to be a good person. Again, those who grew up in the, you'll never admit this, but functionally, you're just a good moral person. You do what you know is the right thing to do. You serve. You don't even know why you're serving anymore. You just do things. It's just a habit. It's just religiosity instead of a vibrant, grace-motivated, Christ-centered devotion to God and his people. And so to conclude, then godliness is what happens when the Spirit of God works by taking the Word of God to renew our minds, impact our hearts, affect our desires, which then leads to the truest form of service, which is an overflow that leads to action. And the reason Paul focuses so much on planting and establishing healthy churches is because of this. Why should we care about the church? Because God absolutely cares about his church. In fact, it is the only clear, ordained place and arena that God says a Christian will grow in godliness. This is where you practice godliness. This is where you grow in truth. This is where you practice community. The local church was, is, and always be the arena where Jesus himself says, I am the head of it, and it is designed for my people to grow as the body and to reflect the beauty of the gospel to the watching world. And so my prayer, and I hope your prayer too, is that Grace Hill, we'd follow that blueprint We'd have godly leaders, courageous conviction, and have truth that leads to godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as a church, would get us on the same page with your word. Father, your word is so clear. You know what your church needs. And God, sometimes it gets convoluted and confused. But may the purity of the gospel, the pursuit of godliness, and the hard work, but worthy work, of loving and serving you and your people be at the core and root of anything and everything that Grace Hill ought to become and strives to become. We pray for protection over our fellow churches in the area and beyond, that you would build your church as you promised to do and you would do it here and now. In Jesus' name we pray.